0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: It's that magical time of year, Chris. Folks are making plans, setting aside time to sit down and read the SEC's annual enforcement report. That's right. No need to travel (laughs) for that one. No, but if you're in the car, we're here for you. It it is just in time for Turkey Day. (laughs) The SEC's annual enforcement report is out. There are some very important things to talk about. So pour a cup of hot cider, grab a piece of apple pie, because we're going to break it down for you today on this special enforcement episode of Insecurities.
2: Hello, happy holiday listeners, and welcome to this special uh, edition of the Insecurities Podcast, where we will still keep it fresh and stay wonky, focused much more on this year's fiscal 2021 enforcement report uh, that came out last week. Kurt and I, I think we've probably got like nine or ten versions of this joke where we say it's the best time of the year. It's the (laughs) X conference or it's the Y time. Well, here we've got the Z, we've got the enforcement report. Uh, For our listeners out there, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my my good friend and co-host,
1: Kurt Yep, Good to be with you for this special episode. I hope everybody will tune back in in a couple weeks for our next episode when we're going to sit down with Commissioner Allison Heron lee to talk about private markets and ESG. But today, Mm -hmm. yes, it is exciting. We're focusing on the SEC's annual enforcement report. We are excited to have a very special guest with us today to talk about the report. We're going to introduce her in, in just a minute. But first, Chris, Chris, let's talk a little bit about what we saw um, in the report. A few top line figures just for the folks who are uh, keeping score at home in 2021. The SEC filed 434 new enforcement actions. That's a 7% increase over the prior year. The agency filed 697 total enforcement actions, which is a 3% decrease over the prior year. The SEC also obtained judgments and orders for nearly $2.4 billion. That's with a B in disgorgement and more than $1.4 billion in penalties. So anyway, Chris, those are some top line figures. Uh, Anything that jumped out for you? I'll lean
2: much more into our holiday metaphor, Kurt. Uh, This report to me always seems like that cornucopia, that Thanksgiving table in which every type, flavor, style and size of action that was taken in the past 12 months in the fiscal year for the SEC is laid out uh, for us to peruse and enjoy. So I don't know if we can do the one to one like what is the green bean casserole case or what is the cranberry sauce? Mm -hmm. Maybe we save that for for our holiday episode in a month or two. Um, You know, to me, uh, the things that stuck out to me are really kind of the twofold, right? We've seen a continuation of all of those traditional uh, matters and and topic areas that the SEC should be covering. Uh, A little bit of resurgence in the FCPA space recently, Uh, but then also I always look at and we talk about this a lot that gatekeeper issue. That's been something that's kind of trailed with the last administration into the current iteration of the enforcement division and seeing a few of those gatekeeper cases come up or, or where my focus is, you know, mainly because I serve as a gatekeeper, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, looking at how those things are are prosecuted or enforced and what the issues are in those cases is always interesting to me. But Kurt, I know you always take a different uh, angle, a different perspective. What jumped
1: out to you? So I I have three Things that kind of jumped out to me, Uh, I would say one was on the stats, one on the substance, and one on the pipeline. Um, I actually think on the substance we were kind of looking at this the same way. They said something in there like, you know, this year we covered the waterfront, and yeah, it it's all there. Uh, New things like DeFi and SPACs, and old things like insider trading and issuer reporting and disclosure cases, uh, really did kind of kind of cover all (laughs) all manner of sins, if you will. Um, On on the stats. You know, it was a really interesting read for me. I think they went out of their way to put a good face on it. Um, And we'll see if our guest agrees with that or or not in a few minutes. Um, But, you know, they said, for example, that that we only had a 3% decrease in the total number of actions. Well, like, okay, but that's against last year, which was the worst year in 10 years. So it's like a decrease on – the worst year we've seen in, in ages. Um, so I don't know. They're like, it's only 3%. Um, and I'm still thinking we haven't seen numbers like this since 2013. So mm-hmm. what, what's going on over there? I felt kind of the same with, with the comments they were making about the, the penalties and disgorgement. Uh, they made a point of separating them out. Usually they lump them all together, you know. So like last year, they said we got 4.68, I think it was billion in penalties and disgorgement or ordered uh, penalties and disgorgement. This year, they said, well, let us tell you about the disgorgement and let us tell you about the penalties. I think for the purpose of being able to say the penalties went up. The penalties yeah. really went up. So look what a great job we're doing. And, and I'm thinking, well, that included a $1 billion FCPA case. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm yeah. not sure how to think about it. Um On the pipeline, I would just note that they've had a habit in the last couple of years of tying into the enforcement report some of the statistics that we see in the SEC's annual whistleblower report, which also came out just a few days ago. The numbers were crazy this year, over 12,000 tips. I think it was up like 70% or something. I'm waiting to see how that is going to funnel into the enforcement program. Uh, it, It didn't in this year's results, but that would be happening really quickly. I don't think that all of these new tips are going to be high quality tips that are going to lead to referrals or enforcement. But you can't almost double your number of tips and not have some uptick in the number of cases. So it will be really interesting to see what these numbers look like next year, how well they are able to triage all of these new tips because they still potentially have resource constraints that are going to limit their ability to do so. So anyway, those were kind of my big things. But As promised, we have a very special guest with us today. I am delighted to introduce my new colleague at Quinn Emanuel, Sarah Kincannon. Sarah is a partner here at Quinn, uh, based in D.C. and New York. She recently joined the firm as co-chair of the SEC Enforcement Practice. Before joining Quinn Emanuel, Sarah held senior positions at the SEC, including as Senior Trial Counsel and Senior Counsel to the Co-Directors of Enforcement. Stephanie Avakian, and Steve Pekin. And in that role, uh, and as part of the co-director's executive staff, Sarah was integral to the preparation and drafting of the 2019 annual report. So really, couldn't think of a better person to talk to us about what this year's report looks like, what it says or may not say. Uh, Sarah, so glad you could join us. Welcome to Insecurities.
3: Thank you, Kurt and Chris. I am a big fan and completely wonky, so I am very happy to have the chance to be here (laughs) talking to you today.
1: Love
2: it. That's great. And and we know you work well with others, Sarah. Uh, You served uh, as Senior Counsel to the Co-Directors of Enforcement. Now you are the Co-Chair of Quinn Emanuel's SEC Enforcement Practice. A lot of teamwork, Uh, so we're glad to have you on the podcast today. So, you know, just to kick it off, we'll ask a few specific questions about, you know, our interpretations of the report, but give us what your high-level takes are and what you saw in the enforcement report that came out last week.
3: So as a, a starting point, I think both of you may be a little too kind in your introductory remarks in calling it a report, because the thing that jumped out at me most of all was the format of this new thing that we have all received. So at a high level, it's impossible not to immediately focus on the difference in how this looks from previous annual reports that we received from the prior administration. So instead of a glossy annual report led off by a director's message with the photo, we got a press release that's not attributed to any author, followed by a 17-page addendum of lists of cases and statistics. Now, there are a lot of reasons why Director Grubir Graywall may have taken this new, more streamlined approach, the most important of which is time. Grubir has only been in his position for four months since July, and from a process perspective, putting out that annual report takes an enormous amount of contribution from a whole slew of people in the division and outside the division. So each of the investigative core and specialty unit senior officers contributes the trial unit chief, the bankruptcy collections, distributions, and receiverships chief, the office of the whistleblower, the office of market intelligence, and then outside the division, OGC, the office of general counsel, and the chairman's office itself has a considerable role in the preparation of the report. So it may simply be in the interest of getting a report out timely following the end of the SEC's fiscal year in September, that they took this more truncated approach. But I do find it interesting that the data was disseminated under cover of a press release rather than with a personalized message from the director of enforcement, focusing on the accomplishments of the division over the last year, as well as priorities for the upcoming year, and telling the public including the defense bar, about the strategic focus of the division going forward. In combination with some recent public statements from the director concerning, for example, reduced numbers of wells meetings directly with the director and the deputy director of enforcement, and the relatively light number of communications with the public during the four months that Gerbier has been in this position, This could be perceived as an unfortunate trend of saying less about the inner workings and priorities of the division and providing less transparency in communications with, among others, the defense bar, uh, so that we can best predict the actions of the division of enforcement on behalf of our clients.
2: You know, Sarah, you said you've listened to the podcast before. You know, I'm a big KPI guy. Those key performance indicators. There we go. Yep. (laughs) Ring the bell or sound the air horn, whatever you want to do about KPIs. Uh, you talked a little bit about the lack of transparency about the direction that the enforcement division may be going, Sarah. But uh, to Kurt, your point earlier, they were very transparent in spelling out those kind of metric-based discussions. And you commented on the phrase earlier, stand-alone actions were highlighted in this, this year's, I guess we'll say press release now, Sarah, noting your your comment on on the report format. You know, they spoke about that last year and again, uh, you know, in the press release this year. Those competing measures have created some confusion. Uh, those standalone actions went up to Kurt's point, but actually the the number of total actions went down. So, uh, you know, Sarah, are, is the SEC playing hide the ball here, or what's going on with this whole standalone actions metric? And and what should we as as enforcement professionals, you know, on the defense side, think about as w- the important number here in what they're reporting?
3: I think it's been the case for a while that the reported statistics for the division typically include both a standalone number and an all-case number. So from that perspective, where we are this year is not that dissimilar from prior years. In 2020, for example, the division reported 715 total actions, 405 of which were standalone. In 2019, the division reported 862 total actions. 526 of which were standalone actions. In contrast, this year, as Kurt said at the onset, the division reported 432 standalone actions and a total of 697 total actions, which is the lowest number in some time. So why um, is the the reporting this way? And I think it raises a couple of different questions. First, what's a standalone action versus a follow-on action? And second, and really more interestingly, why might a particular director choose to emphasize one over the other? To answer the first question, a standalone action simply means a new action brought by the commission in federal district court or an administrative proceeding. Standalone actions include numerous different types of violations of the securities laws, and can be either settled or litigated. I think sometimes people focus on standalones as being the litigated cases. They can be either litigated or more likely settled. It's worth noting that in some years, the number of standalone actions can be significantly higher due to various initiatives. So for example, the reported standalone actions in both 2019 and 2020 included numerous cases that were brought as part of the share class initiative which involves self-reporting by investment advisory firms and an accelerated resolution process. Over the lifetime of that initiative, nearly 100 investment advisory firms self-reported, resulting in dozens of standalone actions and nearly $140 million in relief. In contrast, follow-on actions are administrative proceedings seeking bars based on the outcome of commission actions or actions by other regulators, criminal authorities. By definition, they follow another action in which the commission or another authority already has received relief, and they include, for example, actions to bar attorneys and auditors from appearing or practicing before the commission, actions to bar or suspend individuals affiliated with broker-dealers and investment advisors, and actions to bar individuals from serving as a director or officer of a public company, as well as other injunctive relief. So that comes to the second and what I think is the more interesting question, which is why the change in emphasis? Why is this administration choosing to emphasize the standalone actions over total actions when in past years it's been the opposite? So the answer here may be as simple as the cynical answer. Case numbers drive congressional budgets. No one wants to look like their total productivity (laughs) is dropping year over year. And optically, the standalone number is up this year when the total number of actions is down. A less cynical answer, though, might be to look at the substance of the cases being brought. I think most people would agree that the real work of the division and of the commission is done in the standalone actions. That's where investor protection occurs. That's really where uh, the division is taking actions on behalf of the investing public, both to recover relief and to enjoin bad conduct. So it's not surprising uh, that Director Graywell may have chosen to emphasize both the good news optically and more, the more substantively meaningful work of the division. That said, it would also be interesting to dig into the why of why the number of follow-on actions is declining. And there are a variety of potential causes. I haven't dug in myself on which of these is most likely, and you probably have a whole bunch of confounding factors you'd have to take into consideration. But are there fewer follow-ons because the commission's bringing fewer cases against individuals overall? Is it the case that there are fewer follow-ons because the commission is choosing to forego that element of relief in actions in which individuals have been charged? Is it because the commission is, despite statements about the importance of gatekeepers, giving those individuals a pass? Or um, is it because of some other fourth factor uh, that I haven't considered and don't have at my fingertips right now? So the answers to all of those questions would be interesting to pull out of the data or, of course, from a director's message at the beginning of an annual report if we had one.
1: Good points. I noticed Chris went a little white there when you said they, they maybe could do better with the gatekeepers. Uh-huh. I think yeah, I think you're I think you're okay, bud. Um, <laughs> so look, I I happen to to like the standalone number. I, I think it tells us a little bit more, gives us more meaningful information about what's going on. I mean, for example, this year they did something I haven't seen before. I don't recall anyway. They they told us how many of the cases were for delinquent filers, right? Like the twelve J kind of cases, which sometimes. Is an awful lot and can have the uh, the effect of inflating the numbers. And this year they're like, here it is, it's 120. You know, when we start carving that stuff out, you you peel things away. I'm like, okay, like what are the number of real cases? And that's kind of how I think of of the standalones. So I like seeing it. And we now have enough years where that data has been reported out that we can kind of see what's happening year on year. But this, of course, begs the question: Should we even be focusing on the number of actions? At all? Should we be drilling down on the stats or should we be talking about the types of cases? The division is bringing, you know, Sarah, your, your old bosses, uh, Steph and Steve, were uh, fond of saying we should focus on the quality, not the quantity. I think that line might have even crept into the 2019 report that you uh, you helped write. So what should we be talking about?
3: So given that intro, it very likely will not surprise you that I think we <laughs> should be talking about quality, not quantity. The problem with data, um, and I say this in, in recognition that Chris has an accounting background, is that data can provide the illusion of objectivity while, in fact, a lot of nuance can be buried in data. So, for example, I mentioned the share class initiative, where you see those 2019 numbers going way, way up, largely driven by a single class of cases. And what happens is, you know, while we're congratulating ourselves for the great performance in 2019, The pressure to keep those numbers up, even when they're not comparable initiatives in subsequent years, goes way, way up. No one wants to look like they're moving backwards or doing less than in prior years, and as I mentioned before, cases drive budgets. That said, shouldn't there be just as much incentive, if not more, for the division to investigate cases and decline to bring cases if there's not investor harm, if there isn't US jurisdiction, if a company or individual has stopped the misconduct and completely remediated. So I feel, and I think that that Steve would agree with me, that the pressure to increase year over year the number of standalone cases being brought creates potentially perverse incentives to keep pushing cases forward towards settlement or litigation, even when those cases may not be the best place to devote the division's limited resources. There should be some sort of incentive, some sort of reward to investigative staff for calling the balls and strikes early. Current system simply doesn't do that. Where every year there's an expectation by the public of we're gonna see an ever increasing number of both standalone and follow on actions. <laughs>
1: Alright, so I've definitely seen that expectation. I mean, I don't know if that, (laughs) who exactly is driving that, but you're right, because it is something that people talk about and like you want to see the number go, uh, go up and up and up. I recall people really starting to pay attention to that probably when uh when when Andrew Seresny was the director of enforcement and i'm not sure why that is maybe there was a little bit more transparency in the reporting but it really has been a focal point i think since then so let's say for the last 10 years but let's talk a little bit about the quality of the cases cuz i think that is uh that is more interesting perhaps is to really dig in on on some of that stuff you know this the report the press release this year leads with crypto and spacs But really, as the report puts it, quote, spans the entire securities waterfront, end quote. I've been watching the press releases come out. I've been watching it pretty closely for a few months to try to get a sense of what this commission is focusing on. The things they chose to highlight in the press release itself are frankly, all over the place. So I've been predicting that this was going to be a like all things to all people style annual report. But as they say, when everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So Sarah, you've put these reports together. You've read this one. What can you glean from the report about the areas the division may be focusing on?
3: I think that is a really tough question. And for several reasons. So first, we're in the early stages of a new administration. The average life cycle of an investigation from inception through the filing of a settled or litigated action is 22 to 24 months. So all of the cases that are part of this 2021 release are cases that were initiated under the prior administration. There's no question that this administration is keenly focused on crypto cases. We've seen that uptick over the last few months and on SPACs, but it's really at early stages to say, you know, is this administration going to continue to move aggressively in those two spaces or is it going to try to be all things to all people? And I I think we'll touch on that a little bit more later. So in the uh, crypto space in particular, this commission may be moving aggressively, both to stake out its territory in the, the turf war with the CFTC, also to beat out congressional intervention, and to get out ahead of any outcome in litigated crypto cases that could change the lay of the landscape going forward. In the SPAC space, it's an area where the commission through Corp Fin has been extremely proactive, but much like in the nascent days of crypto, the enforcement SPAC cases really are picking off the low-hanging fruit, the cases where the fraud, as alleged by the commission, is so indisputable um, that there has to be an enforcement action. We're not seeing, yet to my knowledge, enforcement actions in the SPAC space that are kind of the more typical SPAC transaction that's not simply complete fraud on investors. But I agree with you uh, right now, Kurt, that where we seem to be is that we're seeing a lot of things announced by Chair Gensler, a lot of different things discussed as priorities by Gurbir Graywall, and it's difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff at this stage of this new administration. Now, if you look at the headlines in the news release, it's probably the case that, as you flagged in your introductory remarks, that a lot of the overall headline cases, once you get past SPACs and crypto, and a handful of new form CRS cases coming from Reg BI, which you know in past years simply wasn't something that the enforcement division had in its arsenal of tools. Other things that we're seeing as the headlines are the same in this report as in prior reports. So holding individuals accountable, ensuring gatekeepers live up to their obligations, policing financial fraud and issuer disclosure, charging improper conduct by investment professionals, protecting market integrity, insider trading, market manipulation, FCPA and public finance abuse. None of those are new. So it's not until you dig beneath the headlines that you see meaningful differences. For example, issuer disclosure cases continue to decline while investment advisor and investment company cases go up. FCPA cases, here, Chris, I disagree with you. I think we have some real headline-making FCPA cases. Exactly. But on overall numbers, Mm -hmm. FCPA is way, way down. And I would anticipate that FCPA would continue to go down. Although you may see an uptick in cross-border enforcement in other areas, um, you know, last year exemplified by the Luck and Coffee matter out of the, the PRC, but you may see this administration becoming more aggressive in other cross-border spaces where in prior years um, the commission had not been as active. So over the, uh, the next few months to a year, I think you'll start seeing more about the imprint of this administration's priorities coming to the surface, I I do think that we're going to see an uptick in cases where individual liability, including against CEOs, CFOs, other C-suite executives, and gatekeepers, sorry, Chris, (laughs) is going to go up, as well as market integrity cases stemming from the events of earlier this year and following the GameStop report, which is another all things to all people as well as investment advisor and investment company cases going up.
2: Yeah, I'm not too worried after Kurt a few minutes ago just said I'll be okay. So I think that that qualifies as legal advice. Uh, Thank you, Kurt. Uh, and, and a record of our. This, this relationship. This is not legal advice. I,
1: I want to be very clear. <laughs> also, I want to make a disclaimer that although Sarah and I work together, I did not ask her to plug Reg BI. Uh, it's, Chris, it, look, it just it is what it is. There's man, a lot. There's going to be a lot of air works.
2: horns on today's episode for all of our big <laughs> hit comments.
1: Um, great getting that in there, Sarah. So we've heard a lot of tough talk from the SEC in recent months. Uh, a lot of saber-rattling, if you will, and it continued in the press release. Chair Gensler was quoted as saying, the SEC's enforcement division is the cop on the beat for America's securities laws. As these results show, we go after misconduct wherever we find it in the financial system, holding individuals and companies accountable without fear or favor. Side note, this without fear or favor comment is becoming a theme, maybe even a platitude in the Gensler Commission. Uh, Commissioner Crenshaw first used it in a speech way back in March where she was calling on the commission to rethink its corporate penalties framework. It's been repeated by uh, by Chair Gensler and by Director Graywall. So I I don't know, maybe that that's that's the theme. We'll see if it if it bears out. Director Graywall actually got on in on the action too. Uh he said, "Quote, this year has seen a number of critically important and first of their kind enforcement actions as well as record-breaking achievements for our whistleblower program, which we expect will lead to even more successful actions in the future." Undeterred by the challenges of the pandemic, the dedicated public servants in the enforcement division have continued to overcome obstacles to bring these cases that protect investors and promote market integrity. End quote. It's it's a, a lot of words, but a, a strong tone. Uh, so, Sarah, what should we what should we make of this?
3: That is a loaded question. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> and it almost invites an answer along the lines of sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, but that's not necessarily fair. Um, there's no question that the Gensler Commission takes its enforcement responsibilities extraordinarily seriously, as it should. The enforcement enforcement division is the last line of defense between the investing public and those who would seek to take advantage. The question I have is twofold, which is, one, is this commission a hammer looking for a nail? And two, what's going to happen when the many enforcement array of wish list items doesn't come to fruition? So, for example, we're hearing from this commission that it will be bringing more cases in more areas against more entities and more individuals than ever before. We are also hearing from this commission that it will be seeking in those cases full cooperation in which companies come clean, including by identifying all individuals, no, long, no matter how peripherally involved in the alleged misconduct. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we're also seeing that the commission is seeking to settle those cases through district court consents and final judgments instead of settled administrative proceedings with cyanter-based charges, with disgorgement, in full, full penalties, and with individual responsibility, including by compliance officers and other gatekeepers, all while suggesting that the heads of the Division of Enforcement don't want to sit around the table and have a conversation with defense counsel and their clients face-to-face and one-on-one about the merits of the cases. So that's a really tough ask, and as a defense attorney, I have to ask what's in it for my clients. So the commission, no matter what its resources, is still a federal agency hamstrung by budgets and reportability to Congress and the investing public, and to repeat your refrain, if everything is a priority, then nothing is, and if every case deserves the full force of the saber of the commission's hammer... Behind it, sooner or later, the commission's resources are going to run thin. Hmm. And I could go off on a tangent here about the thin line between disclosure violations and so-called negligence-based fraud, um, but I'll save that for a time when hopefully, Chris (laughs) and Kurt, you invite me back to the podcast. (laughs) A
2: teaser. I love it.
3: (laughs) So what I'd say is I would like to see the commission focus over the next year on the types of cases that hurt the investing public the most the types of cases where fraudsters lie and manipulate and steal to the detriment of investors, and that the division take a step back and let the policy divisions of the commission act in other places. But, you know, that's just my two cents not to be attributed to any current or prior director and certainly not to my current employer and yours, (laughs) Kurt.
1: I think I've heard that disclaimer somewhere before. <laughs> That's going to take a while to
2: wear off doing that disclaimer, Sarah, in your, your new role. And, you've, and thank you for kind of hitting us back with a great answer to that loaded question that Kurt uh, presented to you. You know, we're excited for you and kind of your new or your foray back into the defense uh, arena. Uh, anything else we will be watching for, whether with Quinn or, or just kind of in the markets that we haven't touched on?
3: So as a, as a trial lawyer, I'm most interested in seeing what happens in the context of the Commission's litigated actions over the next several months. We've seen an increase already since January in the number of litigated cases coming out of the Commission versus the number of settlements. So that proportion is shifting, and that's going to be really interesting because while settlements always give a glimpse into the depth and breadth of the total work of the Division of Enforcement,
1: Litigated cases
3: is where the law really evolves. And with that uptick since January, we're seeing new types of cases entering a litigated realm. So I think as we see the types of cases that this commission is willing to fight in, in which it's willing to be put to its proof at the risk of losing in front of a judge or jury, we'll have a better sense of what the real priorities of the Gensler SEC are going to be. It's also going to be interesting to see in the wake of the NDAA, whether disgorgement figures continue to go down while penalties continue to go up, or whether that proportion is going to shift back more into the historic realm as the SEC seeks disgorgement of ill-gotten Games as its primary monetary relief again.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I like sort of calling out... Um... The need to watch what's happening in litigated matters because that that sort of is where you get the clearest direction in terms of um, what, what I think is most significant to the SEC. That's where law is sometimes made. We're hearing out of the staff things like maybe – Past settled actions or or SEC precedent don't matter anymore or there's a limit to how much the staff wants to hear about some of that stuff. Um, We'll see if that plays out. We've also seen, uh, in in my view, uh, some interesting theories in insider trading rolling out of the SEC in in recent months. Um, And it's not until those cases are actually litigated that you get to find out you know what the law is or what is precedent you can point to reliably going forward so completely agree with you sarah we need to keep our eyes on the on the litigated matters and and the trials if if and when we ever see them
2: excellent well sarah i know this has been a a great special episode of the insecurities podcast and we're glad to have someone who's been so kind to us and speaking about how much you appreciate uh our podcast and, and coming on to share your thoughts with us so we thank you for joining us today thank you Thanks for joining us for this special episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Sarah Concanon of Quinn Emanuel. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussions on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekamoff CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone. Safe travels and a happy Thanksgiving to you all. And we'll speak to you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.